Welcome to the Evolution 2.0 podcast, where we explore the intersection of art, technology, business, biology, and spirituality. Here, you'll discover new trends in evolution that are changing the way we think about everything. This is your host, Perry Marshall, author of Evolution 2.0, 80-20 Sales and Marketing, and guides to Ethernet, Google, and Facebook. I'm founder of the Evolution 2.0 Prize, a quest for the missing link between Earth science, the information age, and life itself. Let's join the conversation now. Hey, this is Perry Marshall with the Evolution 2.0 Podcast, and I have a very special guest today. This is Doru Paul. And Doru is an oncologist at Cornell University. He's originally from Romania, and he caught my attention because he is not only a practicing oncologist who treats patients like doctor's office, patient comes into doctor's office, I have this problem, I have this cancer, and he treats them, but he is also deeply involved in the theoretical uh, medical research of all the different models of cancer. Gavin uh, wrote a paper called Cancer as a Form of Life, Musings of the Cancer and Evolution Symposium, which we'll put a link to this paper in the show notes so that you can uh, take a look at it if you want. But I read this paper and I got a glimpse of the breadth and depth of Doru's grasp of cancer. Now, Doru, you tell me if you disagree, but my impression of most oncologists, like the average oncologist that you might meet on the street, is they're kind of like an automotive mechanic. Well, I went to the school and they taught me how to fix a Chrysler and they taught me how to fix a Honda and they taught me how to fix a Toyota and I have this manual and I get out these things and here come the cars and I fix them and then I send them out the door and well, like whatever happens, happens. And um, they are not like laying awake at night thinking about the models and the concepts and like what's the oncology industry doing and where is it going and how does cancer really work? They're really dealing on a much more mechanical level. That is my impression of the average oncologist. Is that about right? So what it is is that I came to oncology in a slightly different way. So um, I went to medical school because, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I loved mathematics and mm. I was good at math. At a certain point, I, I bragged that I can um, solve any problem of geometry. And then I discovered the problems of life, you know, and yeah. the problems of life are at a different level of complexity. <laughs> yes. And... Yeah. You see, I mean, you know, we had the 20th century with all these very smart uh, physicists, you know, Einstein, Schrodinger, Planck, etc. But the problems in life sciences are literally at a different level. So I'm looking at uh, really the theory of relativity of Einstein as a joke. To me, it's simplistic, you know. Yeah. So what happens, you know, in life sciences, it's a lot more complicated. So because I was this, you know, very ambitious uh, teenager, I said, you know, I'm not going to do mathematics. This is for, you know, easy. You know? <laughs> Let's go for the real stuff. So in my first year of medical school, when I was 18, I said, okay, so let's see what are the problems, the unsolved problems in medicine. And I identified two major problems. 
One were problems in psychiatry with, you know, schizophrenia, all this stuff, which seemed to me very complicated. And the seconds were, you know, in cancer, in oncology. I didn't go to the mind and all these problems because as a mathematician, I could not define clearly what the problem was. I mean, I was in communist Romania at the time of Ceausescu, so I consider our president totally nuts. So you could not, you know, in a sense, study, you know, craziness when you're in a country that was completely crazy. Yeah. So let's take something which is, you know, very clearly defined, cancer. So if you look at my CV, it's a straight line for the last 33 years. Mm. That first year of medical school, I said, let's solve the riddle of cancer. So I started, you know, tackling the problem in different ways. I did, uh, you know, master's in molecular biology in France, in Turin Institute, et cetera. And then uh, I started doing clinical work. So I've been approaching from different angles, the problem of cancer as a basic scientist, translational scientist and, um, and clinician. And what it appeared to me is that uh, if you look in the last, I would say two decades, starting with the targeted agents, the idea was that uh, you have the cell uh, as a communicating device that is wired, and then you are going to block inside this network, inside the cell, an important protein, and then the cell is going to be stuck. So this is uh, what led to Gleevec, which is imatinib, with um, blocking uh, the protein involved in um, chronic myeloid leukemia, and then, of course, in lung cancer with the epidermal growth factor receptor inhibitors. So this was the idea that, you know, you have this type of addiction of the cell to a pathway, you block the pathway, and then you're going to block the cell, which is very nice. The problem, of course, as uh, everybody in the field knows, was resistance, because you're blocking that, but you don't have a homogeneous population of cells. You have all these different uh, cells. So immediately uh, you see that you give it for a while, and then resistance appears, and then it's becoming a mess. So then they moved up from the level of the cell and intracellular pathways, to the level of the tissue, to see the interaction between uh, cells. And, uh, you know, there is this uh, blockage that uh, the cancer cells puts um, on the immune cells, this communication between the cancer cell and the T cells with the PDL1 uh, expressed on the surface of the cancer cells and the PD1 on the uh, surface of the T cells. And you have these antibodies, checkpoint inhibitors that are blocking the interaction. And um, uh, you have the immune system active again to attack the cancer cell. So conceptually, you move from inside the cell to the tissue. So to me, because I have this mathematical mind, immediately I said, listen, we have to go up next level. And the ne next level is really the organism. So look at the interaction that exists at the level of the organism between the different tissues, the different organs. And in fact, this is a booming field. So in the last, I would say, three to five years, there are a lot more paper coming up, and there is even a symposium of uh, inter-organ communication. So literally, I, I was just you know stumbling and starting discovering this uh, idea that in the networks, if you go up on this uh, network organization, maybe by doing uh, some type of top-down approaches, maybe you can um, avoid the problem of resistance of heterogeneity of the lower levels. So this is how I, uh, you know, came up to this uh, idea of the holobiont, the oncoholobiont, which is the cancer, which uh, is a system in itself, and looking uh, at cancer using uh, uh, systems biology models.
so how often is a person who is deeply embedded in the theoretical science, like, like you talked about mathematics, well, I'm an engineer, so this is probably why we sort of understand each other, right? right. Like we have this structural way of seeing the world. Most people who approach cancer from that research angle are not treating patients every day. Like, no, exactly. Is, is it, this, this isn't normal, is it? 100%. So this is what happens in the field. As a cancer doctor, you are profoundly busy. So doing research is a job by itself. So it's extremely difficult to have a full-time basic research job and a full-time medical job. So yeah. you have very few people that can do both and extremely few, if anybody, they can do both well. Yeah. Because in fact, it's also different minds. You have a mindset that uh, is like a video game player. Uh, this is what I'm talking about. You know, when I'm, when I'm looking at this uh, basic scientists, they have like video game type of minds. They're like playing, you know, games. And then you have this type of very pragmatic approach of uh, the medical doctor, you know, which not, not playing any kind of games. You know, this is very straightforward. The patient, as you said, is like a mechanic. So listen, doctor, I have a pain in my elbow. So, okay, no problem. Let's take a look. Why do you have the pain there? I'll fix you. I'll give you some panel and goodbye, you know? Yeah. The medical doctors, because they're very busy, they have to identify very, very fast the problem and fix it. And they don't look at all at the whole picture. Why that elbow now has the pain in this particular moment, this particular patient. So very seldom they see the big picture. And this is also because of the way that uh, I think medicine is, is done in the Western world in this type of uh, mechanicistic way. And, you know, knowing that I started being also uh, interested in looking historically at the other cultures and uh, understanding more and more what's going on, for example, in the Chinese culture, where everything is a dynamic. So they don't look at static things. So they have all this uh, theory of the five elements with the dynamic that exists, etc. So discovering and this is like 25 centuries old, you know, it's not something that is done nowadays. Because in fact, the Chinese nowadays in the 21st century, they're pretty much copying the Western system and uh, trying to do exactly what we do. So it's not, it's not you know. So anyway, so this is, um, I think, what you have to uh, identify is uh, we don't have it figure it out. Uh, in your book, you're um, also discussing about the fact that the origins of life, the invention of the code by nature, how a code which is a smart device, basically, appear from a stupid, basically, soup of proteins. Yeah. This is actually an, an extremely difficult question. And in fact, the oncologists and most of uh, the scientists are starting from the idea of the cell, which is already there. But starting with the idea of the cell is like finding some type of rocket in the desert. <laughs> you know, so... so <laughs> I mean... You know, the, the, the cell, it's already a profoundly complex and smart system. And, you know, I mean, it's not really solving the basis. You're, it's taking uh, for granted the fact that the cell was there, you know, however it appeared with all these theories from the mid 20th century, you know, uh, if they appeared in the ocean or in this type of uh, volcanoes or whatever. So this difference in temperature, 
or um, difference in pH or whatever concentration. So there are different theories, you know. So what is um, uh, interesting, and, and I started looking at, uh, at cancer this way, is that cancer is alive. We look at it as being some type of uh, disease, but if you look from the perspective of uh, really organisms, cancer is extremely well adapted and uh, is growing. And this is why I thought that um, it's intriguing and that's why I called it a life form. You know, mm-hmm. it's like on planet human being, you have this type of uh, life form, which is cancer. And you know, these people in the symposium are talking about a unicellular life form. I'm not sure if it is a unicellular life form or, or if it is a unicellular life form, it's not behaving like an each cell, it's an independent unit, but it does communicate, cancer cells they do communicate between themselves they communicate also with the tissue surrounding them. They communicate also at distance. So it is really a system. And I didn't want to call it a system that pertains to a unicellular life form or a multicellular life form, because regardless of being unicellular or multicellular, what is clear to me is that there is a system there. Mm-hmm. I look deeper to see, okay, so where does the system come from? And the system it's already present in that complicated uh, rocket in the desert, which is the cell. So the cell in its genome has already some genes that are pertaining to the inside life of the cell with all the metabolism, et cetera, to the surrounding life of the cell with the interaction with the other cells in the tissue and to the distant life of the cell being part of an organism. So then, you know, I started really looking at this uh, three-level thing with a cell, with a tissue and the organism, in fact, they are reflecting and mirroring each other. So with, with it's at level of the organism, you're going to find also inside the cell. So if you're going to use an agent to block, you're not going to solely block the upper level, but you're going to, in fact, affect also the, the lower levels. You know? And you're very much interested in evolution. So I'm just thinking how... No, these things evolve from like a singular cell to a group of cells and then to an organism. And if you look at the genes, they are really genes that are conserved for multi-millions of years and they're doing similar things. And you can think, for example, of um, all of our nervous system also as a system of communication that existed even in in, um, uh, life forms that didn't have a brain. Yes, right. That's the point. So you can approach the whole problem of cancer from this uh, interaction of a life form inside another life form. I've been using these different comparisons, like uh, basically like the body is pregnant with cancer or uh, you have a a mafia that is developing inside a a structured society. And then they are interacting at a level that are really codependent. So all the focus on on treatment and on research has been on cancer. You identify some protein in the cancer cell, you block that protein, look at metastasis, what's going on, you know, in the cancer cells. So one of the ideas is to really look not only at the cancer per se, but also in the interaction with the organism and look at all these um, networks that are induced by cancer in the organism to support its own growth. Mm. Then you can think of uh, treatments of cancer not directly like hitting the cancer cell, the cancer tissue on the head, but indirectly by uh, really stimulating this uh, communication in the normal body. So it seems that you're 
trying to solve a problem by making it more complicated by in, you know, introducing this upper level. But I think that the problem like cancer, it's really solved by looking at, at the whole picture. And as a clinician, I've been asking recently, in the last 100 patients that I've seen, why are they dying? Why do patients with cancer die? And I came to literally two reasons. Mm. One reason is that in all this interaction of organs, there is an organ that is stuck. For example, you have you know uh, patients with ovarian cancer, and because of the ovarian cancer growing uh, inside the abdomen, the peritoneum is involved, and then it's stuck to the small intestinum, and then the the food is not advancing anymore, so uh, the GI tract it's uh, blocked. And basically, they die because of this, because there is a local blockage. Or you have somebody with lung cancer, same thing. There is a lung tumor growing and is blocking some type of uh, you know, portions of the lung and there is no more oxygen. And then this, this is why they die. So technically, there are two ways. One is the blockage of a vital structure. Yeah. And two is a general inflammation in the whole body, which is called cachexia, in fact, it's uh, some type of wasting syndrome in the whole body. That's this time a form of generalized inflammation. So bottom line is that uh, what cancer does at the end is inducing a state of inflammation, either local, either in the whole body. And now with the COVID epidemics in the last uh, couple of years, we've seen that the COVID, the virus, is not really destroying anything per se. But what it does, it really creates this environment of uh, inflammation in the body. So it's really the body that it's destroying itself. So I'm using this analogy also for cancer. So viruses are creating inflammations and the people that are dying uh, of COVID mostly because of you know, the lung problems that are inflammatory. And uh, also patients are dying of cancer of uh, similar reasons of inflammation, of course, at the origin of inflammation is the cancer cell. But what I'm trying to say, it's also the response of the organism. Mm. So the focus and also I think the importance of understanding the organism part in this equation is very important. You know. So let, let me just give everybody a little context. So the way I met you was you started turning up on our cancer and evolution meetings. You, you came to the symposium on Zoom and then we had these Q&A sessions afterwards and this guy named Doru Paul keeps showing up and he keeps asking really smart questions and somehow you sort of got into the middle of this conversation we were all having and um, several of us were impressed at the level of just your level of understanding of things. Like you ask this guy questions and he just knows a lot of stuff. And so Dennis Noble asked you to write like a synopsis of this symposium, which you did. And so in your synopsis, which is this paper that I mentioned, which is in the show notes, you outlined all these different models of cancer. Like, well, it's like the blind man and the elephant. Well, we think it's this and we think it's this and we think it's this. And it was, I mean, it must have been like eight or 10 different models. Okay. And I'm like, wow, you know, not only is this guy a theoretical biologist, but he's also like got his wrapped his head around like several of these models and he's seeing patients. Like, so it's like, he's actually speaking with experience when, 
when like these questions go back and forth in the group, like, it's like, well, you know, I'm treating this person right now. Right. So, well, I guess, first of all, do you ever sleep? You just like work 119 hours a week? No, no, I, I definitely do sleep. And the, you have to understand that I really, as I told you, I started very early. So in my career, I really saw many, many patients, more than 10,000 patients with cancer. So wow, you see so many patients. I guess it's um, every patient is different, of course, and every patient deserves its uh, own uh, treatment, of own thinking, etc. But what can I say? In, in medicine, you see, in mathematics and poetry, you are getting at your top level in your 20s. In medicine, you are getting at your top level in the 50s. So you have to have this experience in order to start understanding what's going on. Mm. So mm. that's what it is. And um, you always start with your experience and what you've seen in practice, for example, you know, metastasis, right? So everybody's talking about metastasis. And I had a patient that... Uh, literally develop metastasis within days. So in all these models, you know, it takes time for a cell to change its behavior, et cetera. I've seen it in front of me. There is a patient that has, you know, a bad uh, head and neck cancer and, uh, you know, starts on radiotherapy. And within days, he starts having uh, subcutaneous uh, metastatic nodules. And this is not happening, you know, in evolution, whatever, over days. It's happening like that, you know. So you see, as an oncologist, and if you really have your eyes open, you can learn a lot. Not doing all these models with mice, I'm always laughing, you know, because mice, they're in fact, um, they are um, nocturnal animals. So if you're looking at all the biorhythm of mice and all, all the drugs we're giving to mice, in fact, we should give them at night because they are circulating and they're active at night and not during the <laughs> day. You know? So, I mean, I think you really need this cooperation between the basic scientists and the clinicians because... You know, I mean, some of the questions, of course, that are asked by the basic scientists, they may have imported like 20 years from now. But um, for the relevance, you know, for the patient, there, there are some important questions you know, that also uh, I think they should be considered. So to me, it's, it seems that a lot of basic scientists in that joke in which uh, somebody lost the keys, you know, under a lamppost and uh, why they're looking for the keys under the lamppost, because there was only light there. Right? So that's what they are doing. So they don't go in the dark to see what's going on, you know, and they don't ask uh, fundamental questions. That's what it is, fundamental questions. So you said when a person dies of cancer, it's either one of two things. It's I believe what you said was it either constricts the function of some organ or the cancer eats, like eats you alive. I mean, is that okay? So so let, let me be very precise. There was this um, Otto Warburg, an extremely smart German guy that uh, had the idea in, uh, in fact, in, uh, in the 20s that uh, cancer is due to a different metabolism of uh, cells. And instead of using aerobic metabolism, they are using glucose in the presence of uh, oxygen and they don't use the mitochondria. And he, his Warburg thought, and there's an article published in Science in 1956, that in fact, cancer is a mitochondrial dysfunction. Mm. So this is at the level of the cell. But think that you have this metabolic problem, not only at the level of the cell, but the, of the level of the whole body. And cancer has a need of uh, fuel of something like 15,000 calories you know, per day versus you know, a normal human being that, you know, an athlete will need like 2,500 or, or, or 3,000, you know. And then what he's going to do is going to eat alive the body. 
So this is not so this uh, phenomenon of using uh, you know a different metabolism is going in fact to extend. And you can think of like a, like a Barberg-like thing that is happening not only at the cellular level or at the tissue level, but in the whole organism. And you have all these um, molecules uh, and in fact metabolites, which is an interesting point. Also, they can function also as um, communicators between organs. So metabolism not only inside the cell, but they can be signals between organs. So anyway, so cancer is going to signal muscle to break into pieces so they can eat the proteins from the muscle or it can eat the lipid droplets from the lipid tissue. So literally the cancer patients are going to be like literally eaten alive by cancer. And in terms of feeding them, there is no competition because cancer, it's really adapted to this. And if there is any food around, it's going to scavenge and eat all of it. So this is the other way that happens, especially in pancreatic cancer, or maybe 70% of the patients that die with that, but uh, also, you know, head and neck uh, cancers, all uh, other type of uh, gastrointestinal cancer, like stomach, liver, et cetera. So you see this type of people that look like starved, like skeletons walking around. So this is this metabolic problem that is there. And why, why are they dying? Well, when you have a metabolic problem, you're going to start having also a problem with your electrolytes. If there are not enough uh, proteins going around the albumin in the blood, if you give any drug, it's going to be toxic. So that's why you know you start having problems. Now this is one way, and the other way, when you have a local inflammation due to cancer, like you know uh, a blockage in the GI system, esophageal cancer or gastric cancer, it produces also inflammation, local inflammation. And then when um, that particular part of the body is stuck, it's not going to function. You can think of the whole really human body, like uh, this type of dynamic. You have the heart pumping and the blood that is flowing. And then, you know, you have the lungs that are breathing. You have all these movements. And in this movement, if there is a blockage, this is bad news. I mean, basically, if a patient can still breathe, can still uh, poop and can still walk around, he's still okay. But the moment that he has trouble breathing, he has trouble pooping, or he cannot walk, there is a problem. So we call it performance status. If somebody has some minor symptoms from cancer, it's like a performance state of one, and then has more symptoms, but can still keep away more than 50% of the time from the bed, his performance status two. If he stays more than 50%, more than half of the day in bed, his performance status three, and then four, he stays all day long in bed. In oncology, in uh, medical oncology, we not to treat patients that are performance status three or four. Why? Because if you give this patient systemic treatments, you are going to harm them. So this is a world consensus that when you treat a patient with cancer, it has to be strong enough to take your treatment. And uh, basically, if, if it's not strong enough and you give the treatment, you are not helping him in any ways. And this is a profound problem because think of an infection. Somebody has a deep infection, a septicemia dying from the infection, right? You give him an antibiotic and the guy that's almost dead is resuscitated like Lazarus. You give him the, you know, you give them the antibiotic and that's it, bang. With cancer, the patients that need most of anybody, your treatment, you cannot treat them. Why? Wow. Because the treatments are too toxic. You know, too toxic. I, I've seen today a patient actually that, uh, you know, was in this type of situation, you know. And the public doesn't understand. They think that doctors, oncologists, they can help them 
when they are really on their last, you know, weeks of life. At that point, we can just support them psychologically, you know, or with some pain medication or symptomatically. That's what palliative medicine is. Yeah. And in fact, helping them with palliative medicine, it's shown that prolongs life versus giving them chemotherapy, which is not. Mm. So the field has a major problem. The advanced cancer, it's an unsolved problem. And you really have to start thinking in, uh, in different ways than uh, this type of uh, simplistic mechanistic way with a cell, you know, and the tissue and stuff. You have to really look at the whole dynamic of the system. So there's an analogy that I see. So you just described, well, the patient is killed by blockages of the organs or it's killed by the cancers eating the patients from the inside out, one or the other. Right. And if you look at the cancer itself, there's two parts to the cancer problem. The first problem is the disease. The second problem is the medical system and all of its antiquities. Like the, the medical system is the eating itself version and the, and the disease is the blockage, right? And so what are your thoughts about the medical system, the medical establishment, like all, I mean, you have to work within this structure. It's a very, very, very loaded question. So we like to ask those in evolution 2.0. So whatever you so, feel so like. I'll I'll rephrase, I'll rephrase your question point blank. How can you be so smart and act stupid? Okay. That's the question. How can you be so smart and act stupid? Because it's like, you know, you're seeing the problem and you're like, oh my God, what am I going to do? You know, I'm going to give you some chemotherapy, some this, some that, and you know that this is not going to help. And I'm always saying, if I'm going to like uh, have a time machine and go 100 years from now and look back, I would say how stupid we were all these chemotherapies and stuff. At the beginning of the 20th century, we were giving insufflation in lungs for the treatment of tuberculosis, where pneumothoraxes, you know? So I'm looking at uh, some of the treatments that we have now as a really barbaric way of uh, treating and not really seeing uh, the problem. I mean, we had the, all these halsted uh, uh, mastectomies with resecting uh, you know, the muscles of the uh, thorax of, of the poor women until uh, basically the 80s, the early 80s, when it was clearly demonstrated that uh, lumpectomy is as good in terms of survival. So the establishment has a lot of inertia, okay? Let's say that I discover in the next five minutes a treatment. It would take 10 years to be, you know, entering the system. And I'm talking about a system which is an orthodox, I mean, a, a treatment to be an orthodox treatment. A non-orthodox treatment is not going to enter in the establishment period. And by non-orthodox, I mean, nowadays there are these dogmas that basically you have to use this type of proven way of uh, treating uh, evidence-based medicine, which you have phase three trials, one arm with standard of care, the other arm with your new treatment, and you have to prove statistically that you're randomizing the patient with the flip of a coin to go left or to go right, and you're going to prove that this new treatment is better, which is intellectually speaking a mistake. Why? because every single patient is different. And when you're randomizing these uh, patients, by chance, you may have a group 
that has some type of um, feature that is targeted by uh, your uh, medication that is basically not going to help that group because, you know, by chance it goes that, you know, when you're using, for example, let's say Herceptin, it's possible that the HER2 new positive uh, patients, they had by chance in the group that uh, did not receive the Herceptin, you know, and those that uh, were receiving the, the Herceptin uh, did not have this uh, molecule on the surface. So it's flawed at its essence. The system is flawed at its essence because you are looking at patients at abstract components, not as complex components that have different qualities. And then you're doing all this um, statistical analysis that is trying to correct for this. And, you know, by luck, you can find some um, trend towards a response, and then you're using that uh, trend in another study in order to feed more patients with that particular characteristic, and then you can find the response. I mean, we think that we are very smart with these target agents with the tyrosine kinase inhibitors and the epidermal growth factor receptors inhibitors, but we started using EGFR inhibitors before we knew what they're doing. All the cancer patients are getting an EGFR inhibitors. And of course, 10% of them, they had some response. Nobody knew why 10% they have this response. Well, they had a response because 10%, they have the EGFR molecule mutated. And then every, like four years later, it, they realized that, oh my God, listen, those that infect this with this mutation, they respond so nice. So let's just give it only to those. When they started to give them to only the people that had the EGFR mutation, 80% respond. You see? Mm. So that's, and a, you know, an example of what I'm telling you that you know, just by doing randomized studies without looking at the details, you are not going to really uh, do a service to the patients. So, in, in other words, the whole concept of a large randomized study presumes that people are like plastic pellets coming out of an assembly line somewhere. Right. And they aren't. And so the statistical models aren't even valid. Right. Because every cancer patient responds differently to therapy and all of that. So we are cutting with a very, very, very dull knife, you could say. Exactly what it is. And basically, a good randomized phase three takes hundreds of patients, many years, in order to change the standard of care. Recently, I was saying that in the last 15 years, they started also proving uh, drugs just based on um, uh, the mechanism. Like, for example, you have a drug that uh, is inhibiting this particular molecule, and then you're choosing the patients that have that particular abnormality, you give that drug, and you see the 70% respond. And you don't need to do a, do a randomized uh, three study with 500 patients each arm to demonstrate that, because you took your 30 patients and 70% responded intellectually you knew in advance that they're going to respond and that's it. They are approving drugs based on that. So, you know, with this uh, movement of the target agents, all the concept of um, randomization is starting to be shaky, you know. And in fact, at the uh, AACR uh, meeting, there was a very important talk, in fact, of statistics by really our best statistician, you know, the, the best uh, United States statistician they... Uh, you're talking uh, about that, you know, what's the, what are the flaws of statistics? So Doru, I want you to imagine that we just started a new country 
And the laws, the medical laws are a blank slate. You can do anything you want. And you are the presidential oncology advisor. And you can design the system any way you want to make progress on cancer. What would you do? The most important point. We are talking about prevention. But... We are talking about prevention in the idea that you have the cancer present and by doing some type of like smart analysis using circulatory tumor DNA of some methylation of, uh, you know, the DNA or some circulatory tumor cells, you identify the cancer early. Yeah. Wrong. Okay. In this idea of the organism that is basically the mother that has the cancer, which is the fetus, in order for the mother to have the fetus, the mother has to be fertile. And you have all these longitudinal studies. For 20 years, you take a cohort of 100,000 people and you observe them and see what happens in 20 years. And by chance, you're going to have patients with breast cancer, colorectal cancer, etc. And then you go back in time and you analyze their blood because they had yearly blood draws. What are you going to observe? you're going to observe changes in certain molecules in their blood five to 10 years before the cancer mm -hmm. started. So what I'm talking about is not prevention in the sense that you have early prevention and you find some type of lung cancer when it's already there. I'm talking about prevention before cancer started. Okay. And the focus then is not on the cancer, it's on the soil where the cancer is going to grow. Yes. Like yes. the soil, and you're saying, this soil is going to be good for cancer to grow. We have to make some changes, we have to do some interventions so the cancer does not appear. And this, because I'm the chief officer of the country, is going to prevent 90% of the cancers, okay? I'm going to be left with 10% of the cancers in the country by doing that, okay? Wow, okay, so. So this is the idea. So we've been discussing, you know, all these, uh, you know, points at the, the Cancer Evolution Symposium, but the discussion about, you know, what I'm saying now, that the fact that it's not the little molecules, you know, present inside the cancer cell that can be found, but you can find what's going on in the so-called normal body that is basically creating the womb for the cancer to grow. All right, so... Right, so... I make my living in marketing and I don't know how many marketing consultations I've had with somebody selling anything you can imagine where I said, well, your problem is, is you're selling prevention and prevention is hard to sell. It's extremely difficult to sell. I've been doing prevention studies myself and it's a mess because of the nature of the human being. Why should I take this pill? For God's sake, if I'm totally healthy, maybe this doctor is crazy. Give me this pill. He found that, you know, I have a chance in five years to develop cancer. Yeah, the hell with it. You know, I'm just going to, you know. So I had this problem. I wrote a prevention study myself to prevent actually colorectal cancer from polyps. And I stopped the study because I didn't have enough uh, patients interested. And those were taking for a couple of months my pill and then they were stopping it, you know. It's the human nature. The prevention study have a have a problem, and uh, you're hundred percent right. Okay, so so I I have a a crazy idea 
and I just want, want to know what you think about this. Let's say, okay, okay you, you know how when you buy life insurance, they like send this medic to your house and you like does your blood right. pressure and all that kind of stuff. So let's say that I'm buying my health insurance and they say, Mr. Marshall, we have two health insurance plans. The first health insurance plan is $2,000 a month and it covers everything. The second health insurance plan is $800 a month. It's 60% off, but it has a clause. And the clause is you have to go get the biomarker blood test every year for cancer. As long as you get your biomarker test every year, which does this early detection stuff that you we're just talking about if you get cancer, we will pay for it. But if you don't do your test, either a, we just cancel your insurance and you're out or B, if you get cancer, we ain't paying a dime and you're on your own. Could that ever work? Yes. Yes. In some systems it, it could work. Yeah. So in this country that we're starting together, uh, Doru Piristan, uh, <laughs> where you're the d director of oncology, advisor to the president, right? Then we could make prevention or super super early detection into the insurance plans, and then what? Well, then we don't have to pay for stuff that we could have prevented, right? Yes. Now. I made it really simple and nice. The things are a little more complicated than that. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. First of all, if you look at the different factors that are affecting a human being, smoking, uh, lack of exercise, lack of sleep, stress, overweight, alcohol, uh, exposure to asbestos, etc., etc., etc. The most potent, in fact, factor that causes cancer is age. If you're looking at how many cancers you are getting, 90% of cancers, they are over 55. Mm. So, this is where it's becoming to be interesting because the measures that you're going to take in order to prevent cancer, in fact, there'll be measures that will uh, literally uh, help the human beings maintain their youth longer because eventually the system is falling apart, the homeostasis of the system is falling apart and cancer, I think, appears at a certain point. So all we need to do is stop getting older and we'll like solve all this? Absolutely correct. So stop getting older and then you'll avoid cancer in 90% of the cases. Well, I mean, I wanted to, to say that because, you know, I don't want people to think that, you know, everything is so easy. 
Yeah. But on the other hand, so, you know, once that the cancer is there and the, the whole battle started, I think there are also interesting ways that uh, you can approach. And the first uh, thing that I would do, I would mimic the Chinese that are in their hospitals using both chemotherapy and all these um, other um, traditional uh, herbs, basically using the herbs to prevent the side effects. Mm. In other words, acting with the herbs on the normal body. So they are killing the cancer with chemotherapy and using the herbs. And this is something which is standard of care in China. I had the um, two uh, doctors from China that uh, were with me for six months, they were observing me, and I asked them to tell me stories about how they do in China on a day-to-day basis, how they treat patients, etc. And this is something which is, uh, you know, so I, I got uh, like the NCCM guidelines. I got the guidelines, the Chinese guidelines. I have a book with the Chinese guidelines. Mm. Mm. They translated this for me, the book. So this is something also, I mean, you know, I'm not saying, I mean, the Chinese system is far from being uh, perfect, but we can have some inspiration also there in terms of uh, uh, treating cancer. So prevention for sure, it's important. And, uh, you know, there are some cancers that clearly can be postponed or prevented. And then um, also combination of uh, different approaches, targeting the cancer, helping the, the body, the immune system, etc. So these are really pragmatic ways to, to implement. But, uh, you know, all this politics, you know, I mean, now with the China, with what happened, with the COVID, I mean, you know, this is like, you know, who's going to even start thinking about, okay, using some of the, the, the Chinese uh, herbs. They, they, they should just look at what happened, you know, in, in China with the, with the COVID pandemics, they had uh, very good responses with the herbs, you know, in order to stimulate the immune system. So it became really like uh, uh, a state uh, law to use these uh, Chinese herbs to for prevention. Well, I've never heard that before. 100%. I'm hiding under a rock, but... Yes, that's a very, very important thing. I've been talking to Chinese people. I, I told you that they have students, Chinese students, you know, and it has been implemented. So this is, you know, we've been talking here about this, this uh, hydroxychloroquine, whatever, you know. So, you know, they, they, they've been using this with, with success. Not wow. hydroxychloroquine. Yeah. Right. Wow. Well, that's great. Well, we've talked about a lot of depressing things today, but is there anything else that's positive on the horizon that, like, you know, I'm pretty excited about this, or I'm working on this, or I see this coming down the road that's, that's going to make things better? Uh, what, what do you see that that is worth praiseworthy? I think that we are on the verge of a paradigm shift. And I think this century, 21st century, it's the century of really the organism, not the gene, mm. and the 20th century. And by better understanding, you know, the organism, I think that we can make big progresses in treating cancer. And, um, you know, you have in the 20th century physics, with quantum physics, with all these uh, things. And, uh, you know, we started understanding that, in fact, chemistry cannot be reduced to physics. And now we understand more and more that, in fact, biology cannot be reduced to chemistry, cannot be reduced to physics. Yes. By understanding, I think the domain... And I'm also, you know, seriously thinking in this uh, direction that the domain and also its own logic, which is biologic, it yes. is Boolean logic. It has a logic by itself. And going back to my, you know, like seventeen-year-old uh, papers that I was writing with all these uh, uh, different type of logics and imagining other things, I think in this direction you can look at really the fundamentals of this science, which is the, uh, you know, biology. And you can change, you know, from really the scratch, basically the domain, right? 
Beautiful. Doru, this has been fantastic. Uh, if somebody wants to look you up and find out more about your work, where do they go? Well, the easiest thing to do is just say Doru Paul and uh, put it on Google and Cornell and they'll find my papers there. And, uh, you know, and then we can also, of course, communicate. I have uh, a very easy email, pauldoru at gmail.com. They can write me my last name, my first name at gmail.com and that's it. Well, beautiful. Well, this has just been super fun and I figured this would be good and it absolutely was. And I'm really glad that you've participated with the Cancer and Evolution Group, uh, which is now part of AACR. And I just, I love having refreshing, honest conversations and yeah. So look forward to one of these times we'll, we'll meet at a conference or I'll be at Cornell or, or something and looking forward to that. So thank you. Sir. Thank you very much. Thanks a lot. Until next time, this is the Evolution 2.0 podcast, bridging science, technology, business, and the big questions. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe on iTunes or on your preferred player. If you like the show, rate us on iTunes. Join our email list and social media at CosmicFingerprints.com. Thank you.